Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times, and it brings together the real-life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be right. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have like... You know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> this was like wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, <laughs> yeah, you, you were different. Like, you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com On a quiet highway out of the Iranian capital, surrounded by mountains and a wide open road, a car carrying one of the most important men in Iran was ambushed last Friday. The passenger killed in a hail of bullets. He had been driving to his country home when there was a loud noise, maybe an explosion, and he had gotten out of his car. And it was then that the assassination took place. Was it a band of assassins, Israeli infiltrators, or a remote-controlled machine gun? The narratives differ, but the outcome is the same. Mohsen Fakhrizadeh, the father of Iran's nuclear program, is dead. He seemed to have been a man very much at the centre of all of Iran's nuclear efforts, and he also had apparently a a very high rank in the Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps. In a plot straight out of a spy novel, who killed him and why? How will Iran respond? And what does this mean for the Middle East's delicate power balance? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, the killing of Mohsen Fakhrizadeh. On Friday afternoon, news broke of the death of a top-ranking Iranian official. Iranian state media are saying one of the country's top nuclear scientists has been assassinated. He was on a family vacation in the north of Iran. A reporter at the scene said explosives were hidden beneath a pile of logs in a pickup truck. Initial reports described an attack that included gunmen, an explosion 
and a hail of bullets. Finally, the attackers or attacker Front windscreen shot was left the windscreen. with bullet holes. Attempts to save his life in hospital failed. But the details were quickly dismissed as different narratives began to emerge out of Iran. The news was initially that Mohsen Fakhrizadeh had been involved in an incident. Holly Digris is an Iranian-American and she's a fellow at the international affairs think tank, the Atlantic Council. She's the editor of their Iran source blog. They described it as an attempted assassination and also an assassination. So the details were very murky. There was conversation that he had survived the assassination and that he had been taken to the hospital. But it was very quickly announced that he had indeed passed. From then on, it seemed that the details became even more and more confusing as the hours went by, and especially over the next few days. It started with a discussion of operatives that had infiltrated Iran and had taken part in this assassination. I had seen a number for over 62 people were involved in planning this. I'd also seen that there were 12 assassins involved and that maybe one of them had been captured and the others were on the loose. And then the narrative changed to an, an official account that we were reading in state media. And that narrative was even more confusing, and it went like this. So he had been driving to his country home when there was a loud noise, maybe an explosion, and that he had gotten out of his car. And it was then that the assassination took place. There's this talk of a blue Nissan pickup truck and that it was this Nissan truck that had maybe exploded. But then the official narrative actually described it as having a remote control machine gun attached, something that I think more sounds like a drone, but the fact that it was attached to a Nissan truck doesn't really add up. And so it was this device that had taken him out and also one of his bodyguards who had tried to protect him. So this is the official narrative that the Iranian government's putting out. What you're hearing is a statement given by Ali Shamkhani, secretary of Iran's Supreme National Security Council. So this is the official account of what happened from the Iranian government. Unfortunately, the operation was a very complicated one and was carried out using electronic devices. No individual was present at the site. We found clues and the person who designed the operation is known to us. When you read it in detail, it sounds like something out of a movie. It just does not make sense. And when you see the photos, I would imagine that a machine gun would leave vehicles riddled with bullets, especially one that is on an automatic trigger. So there's a lot more questions about what exactly happened rather than answers. Now, what's interesting is that he was riding in a bulletproof vehicle and he had a security detail. And from what I've been reading, high-ranking Iranian officials, they give them a security training that if you hear a loud noise, you do not get out of your car at any cost and let the security detail actually deal with that. And so what happened is that he supposedly got out of the car and that was very contradictory to what he had been taught. There's been some footage and you can see the car on what looks like quite a deserted road with mountains in the background and then just this huge pool of blood. Do you think we'll ever find out what actually happened? 
The fact that this is the narrative that the Iranian government's sticking to, high-ranking government officials are sticking to this narrative, I think we're going to have to leave it to our imagination. It's a lot easier to cover it up and claim that this is something beyond our hands and we were unable to protect him. So that extraordinary account of a remote-controlled machine gun, the official narrative from the Iranian government, may just be a face-saving exercise to explain why they weren't able to save such an important target. For Anshul Pfeffer, the Times correspondent in Israel, the official Iranian version seems unlikely. I personally doubt that that is what happened. Whoever was behind this assassination obviously put a a huge deal of resources into it, and you don't want this kind of thing to fail if you're planning such a thing. And I think that using a a remote-controlled machine gun is probably not the best way to ensure that the target has indeed been killed, so I'm rather sceptical about that detail. And that's the thing. It sounds so unlikely that Iranians, who tend to find humour in everything, have already started cracking jokes online about it. They've even drawn a blue Nissan pickup as a transformer and saying, we found the culprit and this is what it looks like and it's on the loose. Yes, a transformer, as in robots in disguise. So I think the fact that the Iranian public is kind of making fun of the way it's been described is very telling of how unrealistic this scenario is. And it kind of leaves the question, well, why are they telling this narrative? What is the goal of the Iranian government by not telling the truth of exactly what happened? And I would say it's because it shows their incompetence. It's a lot easier to blame a machine, an unforeseen enemy, than it is to actually blame a squad of assassins or operatives which would mean that this group had infiltrated the country and taken out Mm. one of its top-ranking scientists. Do we have any idea yet who carried it out? No one has taken responsibility. Well, in the past few minutes, Iran's foreign minister has accused Israel of being behind the killing. Uh, He wrote this tweet, terrorists murdered an imminent Iranian scientist. The Iranians are blaming Israel, various... Anonymous officials in Washington have confirmed that it's Israel. Now, we've already had the Israeli Prime Minister, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, not making any comment. Here in Israel, nobody official has said anything, neither to deny or to confirm that Israel was involved in it. There was a rather cryptic uh, video that Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu put out on Friday afternoon. In which he summarized the various things that he'd done as prime minister over the week. And he said at the beginning of the video that this is just a partial list. I can't tell you everything. So many people have interpreted that as being some kind of a hint of Israel's involvement, but everybody has to make that inference on their own. And what makes people so sure that this is Mossad? The Iranians have immediately come out saying it. The Americans seem to be pointing a finger too. As in every good mystery, you've got the combination of motive with uh, means. Israel has been 
fighting against the Iranian nuclear program for many years. Israel sees that as an existential threat. And we had in the past, between 2010 and 2012, we had a string of assassinations of nuclear scientists, which were attributed to Israel. An Iranian nuclear scientist has reportedly been killed in a bomb blast in Tehran. It's the latest in a series of deadly attacks against nuclear scientists in that country. Even though Israel's never acknowledged it, but it's widely accepted that Israel was behind it. And Mossad is known as an intelligence organization, which also has uh, its operatives who can carry out these things, usually quite efficiently. So putting those two and two together, you do come to four, which says Israel on it. For people who had never heard of him before the assassination, tell us a bit about... Mohsen Fakhrizadeh. He's been a figure of interest, not just for Israel, but for many intelligence organizations for over a decade now, an international atomic energy agency, which is in charge of monitoring around the world. Nuclear developments have been trying for over a decade now to interview him. The Iranian government have not made him available for an interview. He was also a target of United Nations Security Council sanctions because of his involvement. So, People who have been reporting and people who know about nuclear affairs in Iran, he's certainly no stranger. Two and a half years ago, when Benjamin Netanyahu, in uh, in a press conference, revealed that Mossad had visited Tehran and stolen the contents of a warehouse there, which housed Iran's nuclear archive, he mentioned him. Following the new directive of Iran's Minister of Defense, the work would be split into two parts, covert and overt. A key part of the plan was to form new organizations to continue the work. This is how Dr. Mohsen Fakhizadeh, head of Project Ahmad, put it. There, he actually said, remember the name. Remember that name, Fakhizadeh. So that kind of looked like as if he was fingering him as a potential target. So he was certainly a very major figure. I'm sure you remember in January, the United States, in a drone attack in Baghdad, killed Qasem Soleimani, who was the head of Quds Force, the Iranian expeditionary force in the region. Many people have been comparing the two men who are now both dead as if Soleimani was the supreme Iranian commander of all Iran's operations in the region. This was the supreme commander or manager or director of all matters nuclear, which Iran have been doing. Paint a picture for us in terms of just how important he was Within the nation of Iran, I mean, how important is he to Iran's nuclear plans and how big a figure is he in Iranian life? I'm not sure he's a household name, but he was certainly someone who was known in Iran. He was a public figure in the sense that he was one of its senior scientists. He seemed to have been a man very much at the centre of all of Iran's nuclear efforts. And he also had apparently a very high rank in the Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps, Iran's Praetorian Guard, basically a second Iranian army which sits above the Iranian army and serves the the supreme leadership. So he was a brigadier general in the IRGC. So all these things attest to his very central and senior standing within Iran. And I wouldn't say he was a national hero because at the end of the day he was for public purposes in Iran, just a scientist, but he was certainly someone quite well known within the regime and amongst wider Iranian society. And what effect will his death have on the Iranian nuclear program? I mean, does it drive everything to a halt? Well, that's a very good question because he's not someone 
who's necessarily had unique knowledge. Iran is a country renowned for its scientists. There are many other nuclear scientists in Iran, and there are other senior officers in the IRGC and in the various weapons development programs who, who certainly will carry on this work. I think that if he had been assassinated perhaps a decade or more ago, when the program was in its infancy, perhaps, this would have been a major setback. I don't think this will be a setback in organizational terms. This is much more of a, a symbolic loss for Iran. It probably won't set back the nuclear program, but it will certainly cause a lot of worry there also about how Israel or whoever else perhaps carried out this attack knew about his whereabouts and were capable of putting in a team of assassins into Iran to kill him. So I think this will have more of a chilling effect on the people involved in the nuclear programs, but not so much a technical or scientific setback to the program. We'll have more on the fallout of that extraordinary assassination in just a moment. But for some of the best coverage from the Middle East, get to the heart of the stories that matter every day with The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today and enjoy one month free. Search for thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Do you remember what it's like being in your 20s? I sometimes look back at that period of my life and laugh just as much as I cringe. If you do the same, then you've got to watch Queenie, the new original series on Hulu. Who is Queenie? Queenie is a 20-something year old living in London. She's facing all the firsts. First major heartbreak, first shitty apartment and soul-sucking job, first therapy session to work through those mommy issues. Can she turn her quarter-life crisis into a revolution? Maybe. Will she make some questionable decisions along the way? Definitely. All episodes of Queenie premiere June 7th, streaming on Hulu. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times, and it brings together the real-life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. Reaction to the killing of Mohsen Fakhrizadeh amongst Iran's population of 82 million people has been mixed. Some Iranians are finding humor in this, as they do with a lot of things. But you're also getting mixed messages. Some see this as irrelevant to their lives. They're right now under a punitive sanctions regime led by the Trump administration as part of their maximum pressure policy. Their economy is in dire straits. Right now, Iran is also suffering from the coronavirus pandemic. It has the largest 
numbers of deaths and cases in the Middle East. Even though we know there's a lot of dissatisfaction with the regime and we, yeah, we've seen rounds of uh, widespread protests in recent years against the leadership, the nuclear program is a sense of national pride. So even though there are many Iranians who don't like the supreme leader Khamenei and they don't like the IRGC chiefs and the people that they feel are oppressing them as well, they do have a feeling that the nuclear program is some kind of a national project. And then, as Holly explains, there's a section of the population who are more hardline. They want to see Iran respond. There's always a group of Iranians, those that are supportive and closely tied to the Islamic Republic, that are more vocal about this. And it's factions within the Iranian government, such as the hardliners, that are vehemently against the Iran nuclear agreement that was signed with um, world powers. And we're very happy when Trump withdrew in May 2018. And right now, after seeing what happened in January, and now with the assassination of Fakhrizad, they've been calling for harsh revenge, which is a term they also use in January. They want retaliation for what has happened. And of course, they think that the culprit is Israel. And they point fingers at Israel because many reports also believe that Israel was behind a series of assassinations of Iran's nuclear scientists during 2010 and 2012. And so they want some sort of action in response to this latest assassination. And what do you think harsh revenge looks like? Well, it can mean a a number of things. For starters, this notion of strategic patience, um, which is what the Iranian government has adopted recently, because they know that Trump is nearing the end of his presidency, so they don't want to provoke him in any way to retaliate militarily. And they don't want that. They want some sort of response. They haven't really said what that meant. The one thing actually they have mentioned is striking Haifa, a port city in Israel, but that would be very unrealistic. Something that could possibly happen in the coming weeks is maybe a cyber attack on the United States and Israel, maybe the firing of rockets in Baghdad at the Green Zone, which we've seen happen in the past. In January, after the assassination of Qasem Soleimani, Iran responded by firing ballistic missiles at American bases in Iraq, resulting in a number of injured soldiers, but remarkably, no deaths. There was restraint on the part of the United States, and afterwards, of course, Iran did not continue, and that was that. But... It's really hard to tell where this could be going in the next few weeks. Has this assassination made it harder, though, for the Biden administration to get the same Iran nuclear deal back on the table again? That's the orthodox view. We've seen it in various responses, not so much from the Biden administration or from the Biden transition team, but from other people within the Democratic Party in the United States, blaming Trump and blaming Netanyahu for trying to somehow tie Biden's hands and force him to take a certain position once he takes office in January. But you could also argue that in some ways this gives Biden more more leverage on Iran because the more sanctions which are piled on Iran and the more that uh, you know, the situation is escalated and there's more tension, then he has more room to de-escalate, to start engaging 
diplomatically. He can always say, look, there are so many things that my predecessor did, so many sanctions that he added on to Iran, and he left the nuclear agreement back in May 2018. So there are many things Biden can say now, or show the Iranians that he's prepared to do if the Iranians on their side make various concessions in future negotiations with the United States. And it's interesting that there are people particularly in Iran, who are still pointing the finger at America too. It's not just Israel who they're blaming. Is there a chance that this is a final throw of the dice from the Trump administration? We know that Donald Trump has been quite aggressive towards Iran recently. Well, it's hard to imagine that whatever happened on Friday afternoon, the current American administration had no knowledge or no involvement, or even if they were not told in advance by whoever did it, assuming if it was Israel, then by Israel, that they didn't uh, approve of it in some way. We saw a few hours after the assassination that Donald Trump retweeted a couple of tweets by an Israeli journalist specialing in intelligence affairs about the assassination. So there seems to have been if not collusion, at least approval from the Trump administration. And in many ways, we're seeing this administration act in, in uh, let's say, unexpected ways in its last few weeks. You know, we've seen it on the domestic scene in the United States in the way that Trump and his minions have tried to dispute the election results. And we're seeing it on the Iranian issue. We may see it in other parts of the world. There's still a few more weeks to go before a different, uh, a very different kind of atmosphere is in the White House. And what will this mean for Israel? Is there a chance that any form of revenge will be taken out, focusing entirely on Israel now? Israel and Iran have been at a secret war for decades now. It's not just over the nuclear program, and it's something which goes back before Trump, before the Obama administration. It's been something that you could say has been happening since the Islamic Revolution in 1979. I mean, we have to remember that before 1979, Israel and, and Iran were allies. They both saw themselves as outsiders to the region, non-Arab states in the Middle East, facing a lot of hostility from the Arab states. Then in 1979, along came the Islamic Revolution, Ayatollah Khomeini toppled the Shah, and, and the Iranians immediately cut off relations with Israel. And uh, a few years later began uh, propping up various militias around Israel, especially in Lebanon, Hezbollah, which have been fighting with Israel ever since. So we've been seeing the Stein war ongoing between Israel and Iran now for nearly four decades. And it's not going to end even if the new Biden administration manages to reach a, a new agreement or rejoin the old agreement with Iran. That is still going to be there. Iran still has its interests in the region, in, in Lebanon, where Hezbollah are a very powerful power player. In Syria, Iran has propped up the Assad regime throughout the civil war. They basically kept Assad afloat when everyone else expected uh, the various rebel groups in Syria to end Assad's uh, rule. They've had a major role in Yemen. They're basically one of the patrons of the government of Iraq. That's not going to end, and Israel sees this as encroaching on Israel. Israel believes that Iran is also setting up various missile sites in these countries which can strike at Israel. So this kind of proxy war happening, not on Iranian soil, but in other countries in the Middle East between Israel and Iran will continue. Is there a danger that moves like this, though, could accidentally escalate us towards something a little bit like World War Three? I don't like using the term World War Three. And I remember in January when Hassan Soleimani was assassinated, that was actually the hashtag that was trending. 
And so what's the danger here is an escalation. There's no off-ramp right now to de-escalate. There's a a lot of damage that can be done from now till when President-elect Joe Biden takes office. And I think to an extent, President Donald Trump is somewhat bitter that his maximum pressure policy has failed. It has neither changed Iran's malign behavior or collapsed the Islamic Republic. They have not sat down for a discussion or even a photo op the way North Korea has. And it's been one of the failures of his presidency and one that he had promised to an extent. Yes, he did pull out of the deal, but that was all that he managed to do on when it comes to Iran. I can see that the fact that he had allegedly given a carte blanche to the Secretary of State is telling that he just doesn't care where this goes and if it leaves the region in trouble, he just doesn't see it as his problem anymore because he will no longer be president. And it was really interesting. You mentioned just the spectrum of opinion within Iran and how there were some people who welcomed Donald Trump and welcomed the end of the nuclear deal that they'd had with America. Do assassinations like this add power to their narrative or do you think Iran is moving back towards a Biden reconciliation? Well, certainly. This recent assassination plays into the hands of the hardliners. They've been vehemently against the Iran nuclear agreement from the get-go. And what's happened in the past couple of years, the fact that the U.S. withdrew and reimposed sanctions and Europe essentially sat by and didn't do much about it, kind of fit their narrative very well that, see, we cannot trust the West. We need to be dependent on ourselves. And if anything, we should pivot further east. We should rely more on China and Russia, who have our best interests at heart, even though they also were part of the accord and didn't do much on their end. And so this is kind of where the direction's going in Iran right now. And I would say time is somewhat running out. President Hassan Rouhani's presidency is coming to an end next year. There will be new presidential elections. A lot of Iranians, even those that were supportive of the Iran nuclear agreement, are disinterested in politics and fed up with the Iranian government in general because they've been disenchanted by mismanagement, corruption, and of course anchored by the state of their economy. They felt that there was not a trickle-down change that President Hassan Rouhani had promised to them. It looks as though things are not boding well for the more pro-Western forces in Iran that believe that rapprochement with the West is the key to Iran's success. And so time is running out in that regard. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times with me, Manveen Rana, and my guests, Holly Digress from the Atlantic Council and Anshul Pfeffer, Israel correspondent for The Times. You can read more of Anshul's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print. The producer was Edward Drummond. The executive producer is Poppy Damon and sound design was by Carla Patella. If you can, please do leave us a review there's a story you think we should be covering, an idea for a future episode, or any thoughts on what you've just heard, 
do drop us an email at storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. Have a lovely weekend. Subscribe today and get one month free at thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times, and it brings together the real life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be right. (laughs) Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. (laughs) This was, like, wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, yeah, you, you were different. Like, you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.